The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, that song is our audacious request of you. Audacious in one sense and expected and desired by you in another. We, we are talking to the Holy One. That is amazing. And we are making a request of you to reveal yourself to us, to show us something of you. And it's expected and desired because that's what you want. So we're asking you to do what you want to do, show us yourself and some bit of your glory this morning in Christ. Reveal your glory here, particularly the glory of your gracious giving of your word. Show that to us this morning and cause us to want your word and to give thanks to you for being so generous with it. So speak now. Grow up your people. Show us your glory for our good and for your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Last week we considered the call of God on the Christian to love the people of God with earnest resolve. That was the command given to us, and as we discussed it, we saw some of what obeying that command might look like, as well as why God would be so concerned for us to be a people who love one another, how, how it is so good for us, and it's God's blessing to us that we, we have a community like this and that we get to exist in this community and walk through life with this people for us and for the world to see. And it's often very helpful to understand some of the why behind a command of God. So we talked about that. But in fact, the passage actually had more to say about the how, not just the why. The how behind the command to love. It was the context around the command, the, the bookends front and back. Before and after discussed the great change that God had worked in us who believe. How he made us new creations in Christ. And how making us new then, we, we with born again new natures then, live differently and we love differently. We have imperishable seed planted in us that's growing up to become a plant that lives with God at our core like God would be the God of love. That's how we can love like God calls us to. And as we worked on that line of thinking, we came to the middle of verse 23 and then we stopped mid-sentence. Before asking, how did that happen? How did that new birth happen? So we, the command of love around it was the fact that we've been born again that enables us to love, but we stopped in the middle of verse 23 without asking, how did the new birth come about? That imperishable seed was implanted in us by what means? God does this, we don't do it, but he does it. How? By means of his living and abiding word which is what we're going to be considering this morning at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, middle verse 23 to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, but really our focus is on 23, the second half, down through the end. 
and we're not going to be talking about the, the actual flow of the argument and, and how the word actually works in us to make us new. We talked about that last week. This week we're going to be focusing more on and drawing out two observations from the main topic of these particular verses, the word of God. So we're going to talk about the Bible and then why we need the Bible. Those are kind of our two observations this morning. The Bible and why we need it. And how, how good then God is to give it to us. So let me begin reading. I'm going to read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter and then draw out two observations. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. First Peter chapter 1. There's two observations. Here's the first. God's word is preserved for us in the written words of the Bible. God's word is preserved for us in the written words of the Bible. Middle verse 23, Christians have been born again, it says, not of perishable seed, that which is human and worldly, but of imperishable. And the focus now moves, like I said, onto, onto how? Through the living and abiding word of God. Which, to continue using the analogy of, of seed and, and life, I think what he's referring to there is what we might say planting. Life, seed, planted the word of God planted the seed in us, and that's how the new life kind of blossoms. It's the supernatural power of God's Word. So that then becomes the focus, the Word of God. Word, that, that word, word, mentioned three times here, once in each verse, is actually the English translation of two different original language words. And we've got to think on this for a second because we're, we're kind of accustomed to, to using this kind of like Christian shorthand to talk about the Bible. The Word of God, it's the Bible. And we are going to end up there, but it's probably helpful to think for a second how we end up there. Kind of back up a little bit. Because there's something a little bit larger here. Our, our first point is concerned with this. The English word is about something other than written Scripture. There's another word that usually translates that. Because this first topic, here, what we're getting at here first, is something that's like bigger than the written scripture. It's about God's pronouncing or maybe announcing, speaking a body of truth. So I'm going to use the word message. I think that's a helpful way to put it that keeps us from stumbling over the word word often. And it keeps us from being confused about this. The message of God what he is announcing or what he is speaking. From before, even, there was a Bible, if you think about it. God has been 
announcing a message to the prophets of the Old Testament, for instance, to people like Moses and David and Isaiah, and then through the apostles of the New Testament, the, the chosen spokesmen of the Lord. And, and then right smack down in the middle, of course, the word that became flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And always, at, at every turn, as God is is putting forward his message to people. He's communicating something of who he is, something of who we are, something of what's, what's the, the relationship between us, what, what's gone wrong, and, and his wise plan to fix what's gone wrong, to redeem, to, to restore, to forgive. At every turn, some aspect of that message is being communicated by God. And it's all part of, we have to think about it, it's all part of a very large web that all connects and forms one coherent whole. So in one sense, this whole web, this whole message is what Peter's referring to here when he talks about the Word of God that is able to plant a supernatural, new, imperishable seed in us, that whole web. And in this one sense, you can't really take bits and pieces of it. You can't say, I only want to talk about uh, the Davidic king, because that doesn't actually hold together without talking about the, the Passover lamb, which doesn't make any sense apart from judgment. It, all these pieces of this web are all a single whole cloth, the word of God. In one sense, it's, it's a single thing, but then in another sense, it gets kind of narrowed here in verse 24. Something subtle here, which we're going to have to pay attention to to notice. Verse 24 and 25 are drawn from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. It's probably printed in a different way in your Bible so that you can tell that. It's an allusion to the passage, not a direct quote. He actually skips some things. He pulls out different pieces that are supporting the point he's trying to make and leaves out the other pieces that aren't for his purposes here. And he grabs these things that, that matter and brings them forward. And if you follow the entire Isaiah passage in the book of Isaiah, what you'd notice is that the text flips back and forth between referring to God as God or the Lord. Because those are interchangeable titles. Obviously, we're talking about God. And we call him different things in different places, and it's all fine. Interestingly... This is the, the point that we need to focus in on. In verse 25, the part that Peter is alluding to back in Isaiah, Isaiah uses the word God there, the word of our God. And Peter writes something different to his audience today. The word of the Lord who is, of course, God. So this is fair. It's back and forth. He just chooses a different word to communicate something so that we New Testament readers would read this and should say something like, I see what you did there, Peter. Because in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers refer to different members of the Trinity, very, very, very consistently, God refers to the Father and the Lord refers to the Lord Jesus, God the Son, who is God, 
But I see what you did there, Peter. You're trying to underline, to emphasize something. We're not just talking about the Word of God. We're talking about the Word of the Lord Jesus that remains forever. That's the point that Peter is trying to get specific. Something gets very specific here. He's trying to point out something. We are talking about, ultimately, the gospel message that is from and about Jesus. So there's a claim here that is maybe a bit technical, but important. Let's sit over here and come over here and say, I realize I'm talking to a church, and a lot of us here in the church, we kind of, like, you get all this stuff. You understand the Bible's God's word. But not all of us, and maybe there's something here even for you that you might not really grasp completely. So follow along with this. When he focuses in the word of God onto the word of the Lord Jesus, he's narrowing and specifying. Like this. If I talk about, I say these words, athletes, speed, physicality, quick passes, amazing shots and scoring, what am I talking about? You don't actually know. There could be any number of things. I just left the door open for you to kind of fill in your mind what, I, what I'm alluding to. Lots of options on the table until I say hockey. Who thought I was talking about hockey? I never talk about hockey. <laughs> you probably thought basketball maybe. And when I say hockey, it narrows in and eliminates all the other options. Now you all can tell that I was not talking about what you thought I was talking about. I got specific when I said the word hockey. Peter's getting specific here. We're not just talking about God's word through the prophets somewhere way back there. We're talking specifically about the gospel message from and about Jesus this is the word that was preached to you as good news. End of the verse. He's narrowing things in here and specifying. Our passage is saying that the word that is able to implant imperishable life, the word from God that we and all the world, world needs, it is clarified and focused what we need is the message, the word, of God the Son. That which was spoken by him and about him. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what we're talking about. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This word, this message of the Lord, we've specified here. That's the truth that was announced and we believed and we obeyed. 
The gospel of God's grace in Christ is what planted imperishable seed in us and changed us. This message about Jesus dying to atone for sinners, that's the word that remains and was preached to us as the gospel of good news. The only thing that can work, the only thing that produces imperishable seed, the word of the Lord which is now recorded in the words of the Bible. Now again, why bother saying all that? Most of us get that and are ready to move on. But not everybody gets that. And some people straight doubt that. Some wonder, perhaps, why do you make, why are you Christians always talking about the Bible and using the word only all the time? The Bible alone, only God's word. You're using that all the time and you're focusing in there. Yeah, I believe there's a God. And yeah, I believe that God has a message he's trying to deliver to people. Sure, uh-huh. But how do we know that God hasn't spoken in the Quran or the Book of Mormon? or in some other religious book, or in philosophy books, or just the wise writings of people and in, in our own human hearts, or maybe even in nature, or maybe in all of those things altogether. There's, I believe there's a God. I believe he's speaking to people. He's got a message for us. But I believe it's kind of like everywhere. We've all kind of got a little piece of it. I'm holding on to one piece of this gigantic elephant. You've heard this one, right? I'm holding on to the leg. You're holding on to this other leg. We don't realize we're actually all part of the same elephant. Why can't that be? Because what was preached by the Lord Jesus and then by those who knew him personally, it is a single coherent message this message about Jesus and his cross. And it matches all of the rest of this whole fabric cloth. It, it comes from it and flows out to it. It's all one big message that is the message of the Bible. And it is not the message in any other religious book. It is actually quite a different message from all the other religious books. That's the direction that verse 25 pushes us when we think about this is what the Lord Jesus said and this is what then was preached as the gospel to the church. That's a message. There are other messages offered. We are in an either-or situation. Not a both and. So it is in fact possible that we are wrong and that the Bible is not God's message that the Quran is, or that the Book of Mormon is, or the Bhagavad Gita is, or whatever is. It's possible we're wrong and they're right, or that we're all wrong, but what is not possible is that we're all right. It is an either-or situation because this message, the message of the Lord Jesus, is a whole fabric singularity that is very, very, very different than everybody else's message. We need to be clear about that with ourselves and with everybody else. Not in a pugnacious, mean-spirited way, but in a clear and honest way. 
We are in an either-or situation. That's the direction that this and many other places in the Bible push us. The words of the Lord Jesus push us that way. No one can come to the Father but through me. Okay, maybe we're wrong. Why should I believe this? Why, why should I read this book and believe that it is the word of God? It is the message. Well, there's a lot of reasons. But part of me is actually just tempted to say, read it and let God answer that question for you. I, I kind of want to actually end there, but I'll start there and move on because there are a couple other things that we should think about. This book, the Bible, good reason to believe it. It is the most examined and the most criticized book in all of history, surely because there is the most writing on this book compared to all the other books in all of history. What it says about us and God, what it claims is important. So it's been highly analyzed and highly criticized, which is a great advantage because scholars, people who read this closely, really, 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 really know what's here. My English translation is whatever it is. I'm talking about the original languages. You can read it in the original languages and really, really, really know what's there. You can check the thousands of existing manuscripts in the museums of the world and really, 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 really know what's there. And when we look at it and think about it closely, we realize, you know what? This book matches the real world. All the existing history and all the existing archaeology and, yes, the science of the real world matches this book. It is not inconsistent with what's out there. This, this book lives in the real world with real people, really. It's, a, it's, it's consistent with what's out there, and it's internally consistent. It's countless authors in three languages on multiple continents over thousands of years, and it all has one message. There are no contradictions, not between what's out there, nor any contradictions in here. Perhaps you've heard people say that there are. Are there difficult passages? Yeah, for sure. Things you've got to think about? Yeah, for sure. There are not contradictions. Places that we see different points of view where different authors report different things. Sure, that's not a contradiction. Passages you have to think hard about. Yeah, for sure. Not a contradiction. It matches what's in here. It matches humankind and we know the human heart. All of, this, all of the heroes in this book are flawed. Evil is right on the surface. Men don't write books about themselves like that. God does. Men don't write books that say they are totally incapable. God does. It matches what we know about out there. It matches itself inside. It matches who we are. All the books of the Old Testament were gathered together long ago, recognized that they claimed to be the word of God, and then affirmed in the New Testament and by the Lord Jesus himself as he quoted them and alluded to them. The, the writers of the New Testament then were verified to be Men sent by God by great signs of power, miracles. There are some religions that actually claim, you know, the mark of God in us is that there are no miracles. That's a nice claim. 
The writers of the Bible say the mark of God is that there are miracles, attesting to God's power and anointing on the men who wrote this book. And at the center of all of it, their claim that they saw Jesus killed and then come back to life again. That's not a teaching, that's a fact. This is the linchpin of the entire story. The entire book hangs on that point, or stands on it, you might say. The claim that Jesus was crucified by a certain Roman governor on a certain day, in a certain year, at a certain hour, in a certain city. And then three days later came back to life again and was seen for weeks by hundreds as they talked with him, hung out with him, ate with him, and were blown out of their minds, shocked, because dead men don't live again. Everybody knows that. People transformed from being terrified and heartbroken to being bold and thankful. God was acting in Messiah to give new life to those who trust him that is imperishable. And why do we know that? Because he did it in that one, right there. I touched him, I ate with him, I talked with him, I smelled him, he's alive again. That's at the heart of this book. That's the message, that's, that's the core of the message, the word of the Lord Jesus that was proclaimed to us as good news that produces in people imperishable seed. Maybe that's wrong. But I think you should read it. But you don't want to. I realize I'm talking to a lot of Christians who do want to. In some sense, you do, you have, you, do, you, you regularly do. But there are probably some of us who hear or will hear this, and the fact of the matter is, you don't want to read this book. You hear what I'm saying, and you're not going to go home this afternoon and find one and open it up. Or you will for a minute and then you won't anymore. Why not? There is something planted in you that is trying very hard to grow up quickly and cast broad shade so that you can't see the light. To blot out what God is trying to shine in. Be alert to that. God is not the one who doesn't want you to read his book. But someone does very much want you to avoid this. Someone who hates you and wants to destroy you and knows that this produces life. Most of us, though, you do read this, and my question then for you would be a little bit different. How do, how do you read it? How do you think about it? Do you engage with it in hope? Do you go to this word from God, looking in it for God? And believing that he's here to speak to you comfort and counsel and wisdom and correction and hope. Do you go to it when you're hurting and lonely and afraid and uncertain? Or do you go to other people? 
I'm not saying other people are wrong for sure, but do you go only to other people? Here's God's word. Do you go, do you go here? And do you believe it? Do you, do you expect from it? Do you know it more deeply and more sweetly than you did last year? Maybe you're not a great reader. Maybe you've got a lot of, a lot of like, time-consuming details. I know a lot of people who like, listen to the Bible on some sort of listening device in their car, on, on their airplane trips that are frequent or whatever. There are lots of ways to go to this book rather than print. But do you go to it? Do you expect God in it and from it? And do you find it to be increasingly sweet to you as you read it and it supernaturally plants in you life? That's what God does with his word. Which brings us to the second observation. In grace, God has proclaimed to us this word we need for life. In grace, God has proclaimed to us this word that we need, underlining the word need, for life. And we do very much need it. We need to be saved to a new life from outside of ourselves. That's what the human predicament requires. Verse 24 all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. That's all humankind, individually and corporately. The great and the mighty, the famous, as well as all the commoners, people you've met and you know, people you only know about through the TV or through a book somewhere, your neighbors and your own family, you yourself. There are so many people, so many people with so many ideas and passions and goals and we live and express all that and in many ways, in many ways, we are marvels. In, in many ways. And verse 24 talks about all of its glory, the glory of flesh. It's being realistic, being honest. We are like grass that sprouts up, watered by spring rains, and we go up like thick and quick and, and lush and tall, and among that grass leaps up colorful flowers and kind of creates a blanket across top. It's just, it's just beautiful, and it's alive, and it's refreshing, and there is real glory in it, and Isaiah and Peter and God are acknowledging that and affirming that there is much good in humanity and in human culture. To be sure, there is much evil in the flesh also, and billions of people experience all kinds of misery at human hands. But there is much to marvel at, and if we're honest and looking, you can look around, and there's often stuff that'll make your mouth hang open as you just see what people can be and what they can do and how they can care for one another and the things they can invent and marvels. It's truly glorious, and it is really beautiful, and it is all around us. And then it dies. That's the problem. The predicament pointed out here 
is not that humankind is evil. It's that humankind, even all that is glorious, is temporary and finite and fragile and brief and so therefore ultimately empty. If you're a bit on the older side, and I'm getting there, maybe you've had this moment where the person who was the, the, the Hollywood star or the the music scene heartthrob of your high school years is in the media for celebrating a birthday, their 65th or 75th birthday, and you realize, oh my goodness, Madonna is an old woman. <laughs> and Rambo looks ridiculous. <laughs> right? They were something at one point. You know what? They were something at one point when I was something at one point. Really and truly beautiful and, and amazing and sexy and bright and then whew, that's the great problem. The irresistible, relentless tide always comes in and all of life is always washed away. The awful with the awesome alike. It all, they all, we all, you. Perish. And you go into the grave. All flesh. All the creation, in fact, it is all so weak and so perishable. And long before we actually die, we face the dying. The weakening and the failing and the frustrating limitations of all the chaos and all the fallen brokenness of the world and of our own selves, even the best of it all. And if we are a little more realistic and a little less optimistic, most of what's actually real in the world and all around is not the glory and the beauty of flowers. It is verse 14's passions of our former ignorance. As we chase, we human beings, we chase our lusts. And we want what we want because we want it and we got to have it. And all that chasing is along verse 18's futile ways inherited from our fathers, all the ways our culture points out that lead to nowhere. The world is a place of sinful blindness and bent lusts and folly and self-focused enslavement. The grass withers so very quickly. One season it lasts, and then the flower falls as soon as the first frost comes. There go we all. I mean that. The reality of the human existence is a cry. The grass withers so very quickly and the flowers fall whew, dead. And every moment up till then dying. <laughs> 
Set aside the, what I think is evocative imagery from the Bible, and let's be clear about what's being said here. Nothing here is living, as in abiding, permanent. Even the best that we humans can be, everything that we can possibly make, and we can make some marvelous things that is all transitory and shifting, we are trapped in a cycle that is not a cycle of millennia or a cycle of centuries. It's a cycle of seconds. As you hit refresh on the page constantly and you live like this for this, we are stuck in that and we are consumed then with the trivial and the artificial and our culture then and all of its passed on wisdom is likewise feeding the trivial and the mundane, the banal. Everything in us undermines wisdom and depth and roots and connection and holiness and righteousness. We cannot fix this place, which is why we are still at war with one another and why we still murder and we still lie, we still hate, and we still feel great fear and we are uncertain and uncomfortable. We, we can't even sit in our own skins, let alone next to somebody else in their skin. We can rise above that for a moment and produce something glorious, but like every ball thrown into the, earth, into the air, it always falls back down to the earth because that's who we are. We are flesh. We cannot produce righteous, just peace and love and joy. And nothing we do can make us right with God, and so we ignore the truth about God and try to ignore him completely, and then we wither and die. This is the paradigm of perishing. And while this may be a little bit unusual, I think that's the point we actually have to apply from this passage. A negative point about the world for Christians. How is that? I think that's the point we need to grasp and grab, which is why I've belabored it a little bit. Because you won't cling to the Bible for life you won't cherish it and see the amazing, sweet kindness of God in giving it in the first place and then of preserving it and then in speaking to you in the gospel to save you and then to continue to speak to you through this given and preserved word. You won't see all that and embrace it. You won't come to it to be transformed in the renewing of your mind. You won't come to it looking to see the glory of the Lord that you may be transformed from glory to glory until you are disillusioned with the world. I didn't say disgusted with the world. There is glory here. And we are in the world. And we should love the world and the people who are in it. I said, until you're disillusioned with the world and you're not impressed with it anymore. You're not enamored with it and enthralled by what's here. Consumed by it. Is that you? Are you yet done being enamored with the world? 
Are you done thinking that this life and what it can plant in you and this world and what it can plant in you is actually real and lasting and imperishable? All flesh is like grass. We need something more lasting, something with legs and power that connects us to the God who is living and abiding and eternal. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord, a huge difference in that word, but. So much difference and so much grace. Something from outside comes that is originating outside of the futile emptiness that is not bound by the broken mess but is above it. That stands when everything else is blown over and dies. A standard to stand on a rock that actually holds you. God could have remained silent. He could have remained silent. And do you see the tragedy that would have been? Not, not do you see it here? Do you, you see it here? Do you see the tragedy that would have been if God had remained silent and had said, done. Done with that mess. He should have. But oh my word, the grace and the mercy and the love of God that he did not, that he spoke that the living and abiding God actually spoke into this world a word, a message, and then sent into this world the word made flesh to come and dwell among us and to model and to teach us what God is like and what we need from him and then to show us what he's like and to show us what we need and then to provide what we need by going to the cross. That is grace that God would speak, that he would turn the light on and expose the darkness, that he would show us the way home. He'd put a light on, we could know where it is. That's grace, but that's not actually grace enough because men love darkness and not light. So God had to speak. He had to preach good news to us. Preach it in power, preach it in transforming, illumining power to supernaturally plant a seed inside of you. Not just put it on the table and say, there it is, take it if you want it. We don't want it. He grabbed the shovel, dug a hole, and planted. Planted in your heart. Supernaturally put into you a new life. Preached it as good news to you. we end on that little phrase at the very end of the last sentence of the chapter. 
because that captures so much of what's been all through this chapter. If you recall all of the plan of God in the beginning couple of verses and the eternal security and the, the inheritance put in heaven for you and then the, the call to holiness and the implanting of a new life that makes you a lover. All of that is God working on you that he accomplished when he preached this message in the Holy Spirit's power to you. He did that for you. Not because you are wise, because he is gracious. He preached the good news to you by the power of the Spirit and opened your eyes to it so that you received it and obeyed it. And a new life was born in you. And you are forever different. That is the grace of God. It is the kindness of God that he spoke, that he sent his word and transformed your heart, wooing you now even away from the world to trust him and walk with him in newness of life. His word did that and his word does that. His word is what we need. So Christian, give thanks to God. And pick up his word and read it and look for him in it. It is a great kindness. It is how he plants life in us and renews us day by day. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.